Hey everyone, it's Anna back with episode four of your favorite Supreme Court podcast. This week's episode is not the one I had originally planned, but with the Supreme Court's recent decision on birth control, it seemed timely. So this week we'll be going over the long history of birth control and abortion in the Supreme Court. So strap in, because this may take a bit longer than our usual episodes. I will still try to be as succinct as possible, but know that we'll be covering more cases than usual. So this journey starts in 1965 in a case called Griswold versus Connecticut. Connecticut had a law on the books that banned any person from using a drug, medical device, or other method to further contraception. Essentially, any method of birth control was illegal. I want to note that this law was passed in 1879. It was by no means recent. Sometimes the morality of one generation is seen as ludicrous in another. So a gynecologist at the Yale School of Medicine, C. Lee Buxton, and Estelle Griswold, the head of Planned Parenthood Connecticut, opened a birth control clinic in New Haven. They were, of course, arrested and charged with breaking the law. The plan was to use this birth control clinic as a way to challenge the old birth control law. In total, the clinic was operational for about 10 days, and in that time, both Griswold and Buxton, quote, gave information, instruction, and medical device to married persons as a means of preventing conception. It's funny, the word married is is in italics in the opinion. Perhaps I spoke too soon about the morality issue. The court, with Justice Douglas delivering the majority opinion, stated that a right to privacy can be inferred in the Constitution through a number of different amendments. Therefore, in specific application to this case, the conversation around contraception is a private conversation that should be- stay between a woman and her doctor and her husband, as the court was very particular about referring only to married couples. The important takeaway from this case is that a right to privacy around contraception, or indeed in other aspects of the marital relationship. In his dissent, Justice Stewart wrote that he found this on his personal view, quote, uncommonly silly, but that the court had no choice but to find it constitutional. So with that right to privacy established, the next case we look to here is perhaps the most famous of the birth control and abortion cases, Roe versus Wade. This case decided in 1972 ended up giving women the right to an abortion. In 1970, Jane Roe, a pseudonym, filed a lawsuit against Henry Wade, who is the district attorney of Dallas County in Texas, stating that Texas laws making abortion illegal, except in cases where the mother's life was in danger, were unconstitutionally vague and violated the right to privacy previously established in Griswold and found in the 1st, 4th, 5th, 9th, and 14th Amendments, the same one cited by Justice Douglas in his Griswold opinion. The opinion for this case is a bit hairy. Of course, we all know the basic outcome, but if you look a bit closer, there's more here than what meets the eye. First, the court had to consider whether the case was moot, as, of course, in the time it took for this case to make its way up to the Supreme Court, the nine-month gestational period had passed. The court in this aspect held that this case was not moot. So, to clarify, courts can only decide active legal questions or disputes, not items after the fact, when there would be no legal dispute. In other words, the court doesn't decide what-ifs. Justice Blackman, in writing the opinion, said that because of the length of the appeals process, if they held that this case was moot, no pregnancy litigation would ever make it to the Supreme Court. 
because it is, quote, capable of repetition yet evading review, this case should not be dismissed as moot. Basically, since other women will undoubtedly get pregnant, and likely some who will not want that pregnancy, this question will continue to come up until a decision is made. So, if the case is not moot, as they said it wasn't, the court can then move on to a discussion of the legal question about the Texas law. And they said that the Texas law, with its vagueness and its broadness, was not good litigation. The court recognizes that the state may have an interest in protecting pregnant women and, quote, the potentiality of human life, but that these interests have a different weight depending on where a woman is in her pregnancy. So... To basically summarize the whole thing, in the first trimester, the state may not regulate abortions. That's a decision between a woman and her doctor. And the second trimester, the state may impose regulations reasonably related to the health of the mother. And in the third trimester, once a fetus is at viability, the state may regulate or prohibit abortions entirely, so long as the law contains an exception for the life and health of the mother. This case is no doubt a landmark in the fight for women's rights. Abortions happen whether they are legal or not. I mean, we've all seen Dirty Dancing. This case means that they can happen safely and legally, and women are not forced into back alley procedures that could, in fact, kill them. And so, the next cases are all efforts to slowly chip away at this decision. Roe has been challenged since pretty much the minute it was decided. Next up is a case called Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey, decided in 1992, and here's how it went down. The Pennsylvania legislature in 1988 and 1989 amended its abortion control law to include four provisions that a woman must go through before obtaining an abortion, and they are as follows. She must give her informed consent and go through a 24-hour waiting period. For a minor to receive an abortion, she must get the informed consent of a parent, but the law did allow for a judge to bypass this requirement if the minor could not get the informed consent of said parent. And a married woman seeking an abortion must sign a form saying that she had notified her husband of the intended abortion. The law was challenged, stated that infringed on the decision made in Roe. I find it interesting and pertinent here that the justices delivering the opinion of the court, uh, Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter, all crafted the majority opinion, felt the need to state clearly and unequivocally within the first couple paragraphs of the opinion that they upheld Roe and held it was rightly decided. They stated unequivocally that they agreed with the original holding at the state's level of interest over the course of the pregnancy, as I reviewed earlier. But then the course went on to introduce something called the undue burden test in relation to abortion cases. An undue burden, they said, was, quote, a state regulation that has the purpose or effect of placing a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion of a non-viable fetus. So, any regulation that was not deemed an undue burden was okay and did not disturb the holdings of Roe. The court then went on to apply this test to those Pennsylvania regulations that I went over earlier. The only one that was overturned under this new test was the provision that required a married woman to have her husband sign a form stating he knew of her intention to obtain an abortion. The opinion here spends substantial time going over domestic abuse statistics and proceeds to note that this provision only applies to a certain class of women, 
and is an undue burden to a woman in the course of obtaining an abortion, stating that, quote, the husband's interest in the life of the child his wife is carrying does not permit the state to empower him with this troubling degree of authority over his wife. Don't think, though, that for one second that this is where the abortion conversation ends. Many states have used Casey to regulate abortion within an inch of its life. In some states, there is not only one abortion clinic in the entire state, and that abortion clinic will also often have 24 or even 48-hour waiting periods. This means that a woman will have to take off work, obtain transportation, and a place to stay just so she can get an abortion. In recent years, and especially with the Trump presidency, some states have passed laws regulating abortion even more, decreeing that abortion providers must have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. This means that even more doctors will not be able to perform abortions and even more clinics will be shut down. In fact, the Supreme Court recently shot down this kind of law, both in Louisiana and Texas, stating that it was unconstitutional, but more on that later. So now we're going to get back into some more recent cases and get back to the question of birth control. The next case up is one that got a lot of media coverage and was making its way through the courts. Burwell versus Hobby Lobby stores, decided in 2014. The Green family owns and operates Hobby Lobby. The Green family is Christian and has stated that they tried to run their company according to their faith. Under the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, also known as the ACA or Obamacare, for-profit businesses must provide certain types of preventative care, which includes birth control. In the ACA, there are exemptions for religious employers or nonprofit religious institutions, but not for for-profit companies. So the Green family sued the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services at the time and challenged the contraception requirement. They said that it violated their First Amendment Freedom of Religion and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, the RFRA. The court, as you no doubt remember, said that the RFRA allowed for for-profit corporations to deny women access to birth control if it conflicted with their religious beliefs. Justice Alito, writing for the court, stated that the RFRA applied to corporations since corporations were comprised of people who used them to achieve desired ends. He also made sure to state that this only applied to the birth control part of the ACA, not other parts of the act that could be objected to on religious grounds. Justice Kennedy, in his concurrence, said that the government had not adequately shown that there was a meaningful difference between nonprofit religious organizations and for-profit religious corporations under the RFRA. Burwell opened the door for more objections to birth control. It also signaled that perhaps this court would be willing to be flexible on the issue of birth control. To me, Burwell is a prime example of just how important a swing vote is. While he was on the court, Justice Kennedy was the most reliable swing vote, and often the decider in contentious cases such as this one. With the Trump administration and the appointment of more conservative justices and the precedent of Burwell, the door is open to challenges to birth control and the ACA. And challenge it they did. In the current term, the Supreme Court has looked at two important cases. First, in June Medical Services LLC versus Rousseau, they looked at a Louisiana law that would require doctors who performed abortions to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. This would, in effect, shut down all of the active abortion clinics in Louisiana, 
making it hard for Louisiana women to obtain an abortion. This was a similar issue to a Texas law that was cited in 2016 in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt, which also required doctors to have admitting privileges. The court held in Whole Woman's Health that this regulation, which made it harder for doctors to perform an abortion, was an undue burden under Casey, since the number of doctors was significantly reduced, meaning that to obtain an abortion, a woman may have to travel an exceptional distance. In June Medical Services, the court held the same, with Chief Justice John Roberts providing the crucial swing vote, seeing that though he believes Holman's health was wrongly decided, and indeed he was in the dissent in that case, he must stand by the principle of stare decisis, or case precedent. Basically, the Chief Justice said that just because he thought something was wrongly decided, he can't impose that on the people. Whole Woman's Health is the president, he said, and he must follow it. And so this brings us to the opinion that was handed down just last week. The case is called Little Sisters of the Poor Saints Peter and Paul Home versus Pennsylvania. In this case, with Justice Thomas writing and relying heavily on the Burwell decision, the path was cleared for more employers to stop supplying their employees with birth control under the ACA. Basically, the decision broadens the kinds of reasons that employers can claim for stopping this coverage. Because of the way that healthcare is set up in the United States, many are reliant on their employers for insurance coverage. This decision allows employers to stop covering their employees based on their own moral or religious beliefs. There have been predictions that at least 125,000 people will now lose birth control coverage. As Justice Ginsburg said in her dissent, quote, This court leaves women workers to fend for themselves, to seek contraceptive coverage from sources other than their employer's insurer, and absent another available source of funding, to pay for contraceptive services out of their own pockets. All of this to say, this is a fight we are still having. The government continues to claim that these regulations are to protect women, but to me, it just looks like they want to regulate women. If abortions are illegal, when abortions were illegal, they still happened. Women just died getting them. Birth control and comprehensive sex education are two of the best ways to reduce abortion, but they're almost never looked to or implemented. There are only ever moral objections when women decide not to procreate. I want to leave you with this statement from the authors of the Casey decision, one I find particularly powerful. Quote, Some of us, as individuals, find abortion offensive to our most basic principles of morality, but that cannot control our decision. Our obligation is to define the liberty of all, not to mandate our own moral code. That's it for us this week. You can find me on Instagram at The Supremes Podcast. Be sure to follow us wherever you listen and leave a review. It really helps. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.